All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to do the part. Hello, and welcome to episode 81 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Marie Haas and Heather Elliott. Hello, Marie and Heather. Hello. Hi. Uh, before we get started with our topic for today, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Marie, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm Marie Haas. I'm a regular panelist on the show. Um, and so far, I've been kind of a perpetual graduate student. Um, that's my lot in life. <laughs> but it will be ending with this degree. Um, so I have a PhD in English from Florida State University, and I'm now completing an MDiv at Yale Divinity School. Um, so I'm living up here in Connecticut with my husband, Jonathan, and my two cats who are kind of bounding around the room right now. Um, and I grew up in Bolivia, where actually Heather and I went to the same high school. And I remember having like a story club of sorts uh, with Heather and some other uh, kids in the school, like finishing each other's chapters or writing chapters off of each other's stories. So um, fun, lots of fun memories with Heather. That's really cool. I had no idea you guys went back that far. Um, Heather, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. Um, well, I'm Heather Elliott. I uh, managed to get off the perpetual student treadmill a few years ago uh, when I <laughs> finished my PhD in the, in the English literature with an emphasis or in, in literature with an emphasis on children's literature, uh, which is why they uh, pulled me in for this particular podcast. Uh, right now I live in Texas with my husband and my two young girls, and I'm also a novelist. All very, very cool. Um, well, my name is Alexis Neal. Um, I am married to Coyle Neal, one of the hosts of the City of Man podcast, uh, another podcast within the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, I uh, and my husband both teach at a at Southwest Baptist University here in Southern Missouri. Uh, he's full-time on their political science faculty. I am just an adjunct. Uh, I teach basically anything law-related that the school offers because by training, I'm an attorney. Um, uh, the rest of the time I'm at home with, uh, my two kiddos, two little boys. Um, and then, uh, also I just, uh, successfully completed a campaign to, uh, be part of our uh, city council, uh, here in our small town. So I'm, uh, also involved with local government. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. I'm incredibly relieved to have it over with, and I wish it was more than two years before I have to do it again. Um, but anyway, uh, our podcast topic today, uh, as Heather alluded to, um, is uh, is a well-known work of children's literature, specifically Anne of Green Gables. Um, before we talk about the novel um, a little bit, 
I want to get a little bit of information from all of y'all about your initial introduction to and impressions of Anne and her friends. Um, specifically, how you first became acquainted with, with the novel or with the BBC, or sorry, not the BBC, CBC miniseries. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm also curious as to if you, if you read it uh, and saw yourself as an Anne or if there was another character in the book uh, that you identified with when you were first exposed. Uh, to it. I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I started with the miniseries. I don't know if I read the book until the last year. I'm terribly embarrassed to say that. I'm normally big on read the book before you watch the the uh, adaptation, uh, the visual adaptation, but I just grew up watching it. I loved it, um, and I don't have any specific memories of reading the book, just of watching the, the miniseries. Uh, and as a child, I thought of myself as an Anne because I was uh, a strong performer academically in school and a chatter box uh, and had a lively imagination. But uh, as I have gotten older, I realized that I was mistaken and I have always been a Marilla. And um, I'm I'm happy to own that. Uh, I love Colleen Dewhurst's um, portrayal of that character and I love Marilla. Uh, But but there's a practicality um, and and a prosaic um, vein that runs through, I think, my temperament that that kept me from ever being uh, as as fanciful uh, as, as Anne truly can be. So uh, that's me. Uh, Marie, what about you? How did you first meet Anne, and what character did you identify with most? Well, this is one of those books that um, I can't really remember when I first read it. I know when I read the book, um, 11 seemed like it was a pretty old and respectable age, so I must have been pretty young. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's it's one of those books that like I read so early that it's sort of like introduced me to a lot of the concepts and words in the book for the first time and that was like my point of reference for those concepts and words like scope for imagination when i read the book i was like what is a scope for imagination (laughs) like that kind of thing um and i'm not sure like what character i would have identified with i mean i suppose with Anne liking to read a lot uh I would have identified with that. Um, so I grew older, I, I and uh, taking on the role of a teacher, I would wish that I w- were Miss Stacy, but I'm afraid I'm not really a Miss Stacy. Although I did once play Miss Stacy in a com- community theater production of Anne of Green Gables, actually. So um, there's that. When I was reading through the novel for this uh, preparation for this episode, I, I was really actually pretty interested in Jane Andrews, and I wish there was more of her story. So I guess I'm sort of identifying with Jane Andrews right now. You know, it's funny. I think I think I played Miss Stacy in our high school production of the the play as well. At least it was one of the <laughs> teachers. I don't know if it was Miss Stacy, but it was definitely the teacher because I was hoping for Anne, and I remember being super bummed that I only got to be the teacher. <laughs> must have been Miss Stacy. It must have been Miss yeah. Stacy. That's crazy. Okay. Um, that's oh, really funny. There you go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Um, Heather, what about you? Yeah. Well, alas, I have never been in a production of Anna Green Gables in any role. So uh, we do not have a trio of Miss Stacy's on here tonight. Any role yet. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's true. There is still time. There is still time. And you know what? At the rate gray hairs have been popping up. I could be a good fit for Marilla, just saying. Um, anyway, uh, so my earliest memories of, uh, of the Anne stories are definitely the old films with Megan Follows. And uh, I have to admit, I really preferred Anne of Avonlea 
to Anne of Green Gables because I was incurably romantic. And I just thought that Gilbert Blythe was the most handsome thing ever. And I was also severely traumatized by the ending of Anne of Green Gables. Um, major spoiler, anyone who hasn't read it, I'm sorry, but there is major character death at the end of the book. Um, <clears throat> and because of that, I think because I, I was so saddened by that, it actually soured me on the whole story for a long time. And I didn't uh, read the book. I would say I identified quite strongly, though, with another character of Ellen Montgomery's Emily of New Moon, who is kind of, I think, Anne of Green Gables' more mature successor. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I don't identify with anyone in, the, in this particular uh, Montgomery book. That's fair. That's fair. And I will say you're right. The uh, the departure of the beloved character at the end of Anne of Green Gables is like a ball, like a baby every time I watch that. And also, you are correct, Gilbert Blythe is super dreamy. So um, I'm not going to argue with you on either of those <laughs> points. Um, he is. He's super dreamy. In fact, the actor who played him passed away in the last, I want to say it's like in the last year or two. And it was oh, amazing no. how many people were so, so sad because to him, or to them, like he is the ultimate, he was just the ultimate guy for them growing up, right? At that sort of adolescent age when you're often loving and watching Anne of Green Gables, like Gilbert Blythe is just it. And um, was it Jonathan Crombie, I want to say is, was his name? Um, anyway, he, he um, when he passed away for a lot of people, like that's that's their Gilbert, right? And and that's who they loved. So uh, it, was, it was a super sad day for a lot of folks. Um, well, anyway, um, so we've been talking a little bit about Anne of Green Gables, but before we move on um, to to picking it apart um, as, as Christians and as feminists, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the, the story and, and the background. Heather, what can you tell us about this story? All right. So uh, just to give you a, a basic idea of the plot, um, it, it sprang from an idea that uh, Ellen Montgomery had about an elderly couple who would send away uh, for a boy orphan to come and help them with their farm work and a mistake would happen and they would get a girl instead. Uh, and that is in fact how Anne of Green Gables opens. Uh, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert have sent away to the uh, an orphan, orphan asylum uh, to get uh, a boy to help them with the, the work on their farm on Prince Edward Island. Uh, Matthew is, is, it's getting to be too much for him to handle on his own. They are greatly dismayed when instead of a boy, they get a spindly redheaded girl uh, whose tongue never stops wagging. Uh, but she enchants them and uh, they basically fall in love with her and uh, adopt her as more or less a daughter. And I should uh, specify Matthew and Marilla are brother and sister, not husband and wife, which I think is the natural assumption that uh, you would make kind of going into the book. Um, and then the story just follows uh, Anne's trials and tribulations as she is growing up. Uh, we follow her through kind of grammar school. Uh, we then go with her to a kind of preparatory school called Queens. Uh, and then the story ends with um, her having to make an important decision about her future, which we'll probably discuss at some point during the podcast. Uh, just as a little bit of background or, or context, um, Ellen Montgomery, the author, was born actually herself on Prince Edward Island in 1874. Uh, like Anne, she was orphaned. Her mother died when she was young. Her father remarried, and she was uh, actually given to her grandparents to be raised. So she, too, grew up a child 
with sort of elderly caretakers. Um, she writes Anne of Green Gables in 1905. At this point, she is an accomplished and widely published short story writer, um, but she doesn't have any novels out yet. Anne of Green Gables is, is the one she, uh, her first. She tries to, um, to get it published. It is rejected. And as the story goes, she puts it in a hat box and sticks it in her closet for a year or so. Uh, she pulls it back out, looks at it, decides she still believes in the book, ships it off again. Uh, this time it is picked up by a publisher in Boston. It comes out in 1908 and becomes an instant classic, uh, which happens fairly rarely and which is, of course, very nice for the author when it does. Uh, it really established Montgomery's career as a writer. <clears throat> the book has remained a classic uh, for children, although I guess at the time that it was published, it wasn't necessarily labeled children's literature, uh, but it became that way. And um, it has sold somewhere around 50 million copies. It's been translated into over 36 languages, and it has been adapted in various ways, uh, which we've mentioned already in film and TV series and musicals and in plays. Um, I find it interesting in that it is one of the few books in at least what I have encountered as the English language children's literature canon that is actually Canadian rather than American or British. Um, and I think the book does, in fact, have a distinctive Canadian flavor, which is interesting to, to watch as you go through it. And that's what I've got. Thank you. That was uh, that was super helpful. And I should say, too, we're, we're talking today um, about the book and about um, the, the miniseries from the 80s, the Megan Follows Calling Due Horse miniseries. Um, I, I don't think any of us have seen the new Netflix adaptation that came out recently uh, or the one that came out immediately before it with, uh, I think, Martin Sheen as Matthew. Um, so we won't be talking about those. So if you were hoping for the Christian feminist perspective on the new Netflix and of Green Gables, uh, this is not that episode. Um all right. So um, moving on then to our second section uh, on reading, um, the way we're going to do this is we're going to each talk about um, a, a theme, character, or series of events um, that we think has interesting implications for uh, the book's portrayal of feminism or gender. Uh, and then after we've done that, we'll do the same thing, but this time looking at uh, themes, characters, or a series of events that, that relate somehow to religion. Um, and then at the end... Um, we may uh, have like a little lightning round to, to chip in any last minute ideas that we didn't get to to uh, pull apart um, in the podcast proper. So uh, starting then with our discussion of feminism or gender and how it's portrayed uh, in the book. Uh, Marie, what theme, character or events uh, would you like to highlight for us today? OK, yeah. Um, uh, well, when I was reading through the book this time uh for this episode, I was really struck by the way that the book treats female romantic friendships. Um, and this is something I noticed partly because I taught a course on the Gothic novel a few times, and that was something that you really see a lot in the Gothic novels. So it's a trope that's being um, played with in this book as well. Um, so of course you have the idea of a bosom friend, which is central to the young Anne's life. And in the book, we see her friendship with Diana Barry and how um, that relationship with Diana is really one of the core relationships of the, of the novel. Um, but it, 
I, it, it really was fun to me, more fun this time, having read some of the sentimental fiction that uh, has these kinds of similar portrayals of female romantic friendship, uh, to see the way that Montgomery is sort of uh, parodying the conventions of this kind of thing. Um, so it's like a very common thing in sentimental and gothic novels for there to be female characters who are like attracted to each other. They shed sentimental tears at the other's absence or on behalf of the other in tragic circumstances. They pledge their faiths to each other. Um, I'm thinking of something like the novels of Anne Radcliffe. Um, for example, in the Italian, the main character, Elena, is immediately struck to the heart with the beauty and the interesting face of Olivia when she first hears her singing um of course in that gothic novel uh, olivia actually turns out to be her mother which is a whole nother that's a whole nother thing um but montgomery is, is sort of clearly parodying this kind of sensationalist fiction that includes the female romantic friendships for example with anne's story that she titles the jealous rival or in death not divided you have the beautiful maidens cordelia montmorency and geraldine seymour um they're first performing all the moves of this romantic friendship and then of course uh, falling into uh, murderous uh, jealousy so the narrative that Anne herself constructs and then acts out for her friendship with Diana is modeled on the same sort of pattern minus this jealous murder um, with you know their, their faux marriage ceremony at Anne's instigation when they're swearing to be faithful to each other as long as the sun and moon endure you know right when they meet <laughs> and then later Anne um, there's that scene where Anne is like like a faithful heroine just sort of covered in tears as she's imagining Diana's eventual marriage um, so it's just it's a really funny aspect of the novel on the one hand with this clever parodying of this kind of standard formula um, the same way that you have these little episodes of Anne's mischief and heartwarming exploits kind of parodying the formula of this sunny child in the Sunday school papers um, and it's really uh, just this over the top version of the literary female romantic friendship um, as acted out in Anne's uh, life and in her fiction um, at the same time, though, it's clear there's, you know, a real depth to the female relationships in the novel underneath this parody. I mean, you can't say that Anne and Diana aren't actually friends, you know, just because there's this parody going on. And, of course, the account of Avonlea life in general is centered on these networks of female relationships of one sort or another. Um and you get the sense, too, in the humor that maybe Montgomery is looking back at her own childhood, acting out of this, the trope of the female romantic friendship, because she also, in her childhood, made these kinds of vows of fidelity with her female friends. Um, there's actually, like, a hidden nod to one of these rituals of her past in the novel, but with one friend that she performed one of these romantic rituals with, uh, gave Montgomery a geranium that she then named Bonnie. And that's the same name that Anne gives to Marilla's geranium in the novel. Um, of course, there might be uh, a, a kind of less hidden nod to one of these uh, relationships in the color of Anne's hair, because uh, Montgomery also had an intense friendship, which included like these effusive love letters with a redheaded Pinsy McNeil. Um, but uh, the point is that female romantic friendships had their literary life taken to ridiculous heights in this sensational and gothic fiction, but they also had a real life side uh, with real expectations for social performance in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Montgomery participated in this kind of social performance. She wrote a lot of 
poetry sort of diffusing over the beauty of her female friends and actually I had noticed that in the novel this time too all of the like there's a lot of descriptions of the female characters prettiness um, and these real life female romantic friendships like their sometimes heightened fictional versions could also from the outside at least take on the appearance of a sexual relationship whether it was one or not in fact um, so like one time the young Montgomery, she wrote a romantic poem to one of her female friends, which was then discovered by a male friend at school who made copies of it to distribute to all the other boys in the town. And um, what in her, her, her journals at least would describe as a fit of jealousy um, for whatever boy the, the poem was presumed to be talking about. Um, and I should point out here that while these sorts of female romantic friendships when we're looking at them with modern eyes, might look something like lesbian or bisexual female relationships. We, we have to remember that these categories didn't quite exist yet, um, even though the female romantic friendship forms a part of the genealogy of the eventual formation of these categories. Um, so this is just, it's a social modality that's no longer available to us, or at least not to the same extent. It just wouldn't be legible in the same way anymore. And Irene Gamble, whose uh, book from 2008 called Looking for Anne of Green Gables, um, which draws on Montgomery's unpublished journals and letters, and that's where I'm getting this information on Montgomery's friendships. Um, but Gamble argues that actually this eventual shift, which is taking place during Montgomery's lifetime, this shift toward these more um, like categories of sexual identity, um, is maybe a reason for the the parody level to the female romantic friendships in the novel because in the early 20th century when she's publishing the novel people were actually already becoming more wary of these types of friendships they're starting to warn against them so montgomery sets the novel slightly in the past um, before this worry actually completely emerged um, so that she could then allow Anne and Diana to perform their friendship without that kind of censure in the world of the novel. Um, she's also perhaps sort of dis distancing herself uh, through the humor of the parody. So there's a way in which the novel is maybe celebrating this female romantic friendship um, in contrast to its actual social performance beginning to slip away and become less accessible to Western women of the time as our modern categories of sexual identity were beginning to solidify. Um, so that's the main thing that uh, really struck me uh, this time. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah, I, I see I see what you mean about the the parody. Um, yeah, that just that's that's a really interesting perspective. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Heather, did you have something that you wanted to talk about relating to feminism or gender? Um, yeah, I thought that I would talk just a little bit about uh, the kind of reverse character arcs that Anne and Marilla go through over the course of the book. Um, and this is something that when, when I taught a course on Golden Age children's literature, I included Anne of Green Gables. And this was something that my students were always sort of very interested in and, and excited to discover. Uh, the book is uh, clearly a coming-of-age story, right? We follow uh, Anne from her, her girlhood through young womanhood um, until she really reaches a point of uh, genuinely adult maturity at the very end. Uh, but what's interesting is that along 
beside this coming of age story, we have a coming of youth story, right? And we have Marilla Cuthbert, who starts out as quite a grim character, right? She's She really seems, I think, almost older than she actually is. Uh, she has a sense of humor, but she rarely allows herself to display it. And she is emotionally rigid, right? She cannot uh, express affection or, or sentiment easily, if, it, if at all. Um, but what happens over the course of the novel is that uh, as Anne grows up and begins to leave behind some of the excesses of her childhood, and I think maybe uh, the best example of this is uh, when we think about her sort of desire for material goods, and when she first sees her room at Green Gables, uh, she is really disappointed in its sparseness, right? But uh, she says, well, no matter, I have an imagination, I'm going to use it. And she sits down and she imagines, I think, like silk curtains and thick rugs and all manners of luxuries into this bare uh, gable room. Um, but when we see her close to the end of the book, uh, after she's she's just given a, re, uh, a recitation at um, a concert, a local concert, and uh, several dignitaries, uh, local dignitaries anyway, have come and also given performances. And some of her classmates are rather envious of these people's prestige and perceived wealth. Um, and there's a moment uh, where, but where Anne refutes this, and she says, "We are rich. Why we have 16 years to our credit, and we're happy as queens, and we've all got imaginations, more or less." And so there's this moment where Anne has really, uh, I think. For, achieved what the book calls um, an appropriate uh, sense of imagination, right? Not one that's focused on material wealth, uh, but one that is focused on what in, in the terms of this book are true riches. Uh, and then Marilla, right, also transforms from being a woman of, of a different kind of excess, right, of excessive rigidity, of excessive emotional coldness into somebody who is able to display affection. And the climax of this, of course, comes after um, Matthew's death at the end where um, there's actually this really interesting scene where Marilla is actually completely overcome with grief and she falls down weeping next to his body. Uh, and yet Anne is unable to cry, right? And so the character who uh, was, was bubbling over with emotion in the beginning of the book has now uh, actually become sort of trapped within herself. And it's not until um, Marilla comes to her and uh, is, is able to say the things that she has not been able to say for the whole book. Uh, and I'm just going to read a, a couple of lines uh, toward the end here where, where Marilla says to Anne, we've got each other. I don't know what I'd do if you weren't here, if you'd never come. Oh, Anne, I know I've been kind of strict and harsh with you, maybe, but you mustn't think I didn't love you as well as Matthew did for all that. And uh, and then, of course, there's another reversal at the very end of the book where we discover that Marilla's eyesight is failing and that she won't be able to stay in her home at Green Gables unless somebody stays with her. And Anne very nobly gives up her college scholarship in order to, to stay with Marilla, enable her to keep the farm. Um, and so the roles of caregiver and caretaker are then reversed at the end of the novel. And what I really like 
about this whole sort of Anne Marilla balance is that it displays the feminine life um, as a continuum rather than as an either or kind of thing, right? You're either young and fresh or uh, you're old and worn out and rigid. Um, the youth can grow up and attain maturity while still uh, maintaining kind of the emo- some of the emotional spontaneity and richness of youth, uh, whereas the, the older woman can regain some of her youth and can regain an emotional uh, elasticity and spontaneity. Um, and then I also like the idea of the cycle, right, that uh, at the end of the book, when there is no male provider, uh, the women are actually uh, provide for themselves. And there there isn't a need for kind of a male basis, even to the economy of the farm. Uh, rather, Anne goes out and teaches and brings home a salary that helps them uh, keep things running. And in fact, if you go on to the later books, you discover that eventually Anne is able to go to college through the intervention of a third woman when Mrs. Rachel Lind becomes widowed and then moves in with Marilla, uh, thus sort of creating space in this this all-female economy for Anne to leave and go and further her education. And that's what I've got. Those are all really excellent points. Thank you, Heather. Um, I actually, what I wanted to talk about, uh, talk about sort of builds on that. Um, you know, I think the the obvious, you know, we get from the very beginning of the novel, this idea that, that Anne is unwanted because she is a woman, because she is, she is female. Um, Matthew and Marilla don't want her, um, not because they don't like her, but because they do not want a girl. Like they've already decided they, they have no use for a, a girl. Um, they need a boy. They want a boy to come and work the farm. Um, and because she is a girl is not useful to them. She cannot meet the needs that they have, um, the way that a boy would. So they don't want her. Um, and in fact, we, we know from her history that when she has found a home and, and I use that term loosely because she doesn't really have a home until Green Gables, uh, she's only ever been acceptable because she was able to meet practical needs in those uh, in those households, uh, specifically the need for child care. So she's been uh, in several households where there were uh, an abundance of children and she was there uh, to meet those practical needs and provide essentially the kind of labor that that women were um, deemed competent to provide. Uh, and so because Matthew and Marilla, they don't need those, um, that particular kind of labor. Uh, therefore they have no use for her. Therefore they do not want her. Um, what they want is, is a more masculine sort of assistance. Um, she, and Anne is just treated sort of at the beginning. She's just this commodity. Uh, she, she is a, a body, uh, that is only valuable to the extent that it can contribute labor, um, to their particular household. Um, and, and those, those assumptions and, and her value are based on, on her, uh, her sex, uh, but not on anything that's unique to Anne or particular to Anne. Um, so her, her intelligence, her mind, her imagination, um, her humor, any of those things are, are not part of the equation. All they care about is the work that she can do. Um, uh, and then because Matthew and Marilla are forced to look at Anne and realize that, that she can bring nothing to them from their perspective. They don't realize, um, as you mentioned, Heather, essentially that there is this huge need that they both have that she will end up um, servicing throughout the course of the novel by by offering uh, an opportunity for them to grow and develop spiritually and emotionally 
But at the beginning, they don't know that. They haven't realized that. Um, and so because she has no utility to them, they start to think about her um, um, once they've decided to keep her because they're not thinking of her just in terms of what she can bring to the household. They start to see her a little bit more as a person. Um, they uh, That personhood can sometimes be a source of frustration. She gets into scrapes. She speaks unwisely. She gets lost in these fanciful daydreams. But they do begin to see her as a person and not just a tool or an object or a source of labor. Um, they appreciate her intellect. They support her academic uh, goals and performance um, and, and even in some way support her imagination. Um, and the Cuthberts never get their boy to help with the farm. Um, they are able to meet those needs other ways by using hired hands to help Matthew. Uh, and then, uh, as you mentioned, Heather, you know, Matthew dies. And then at that point, they're able to uh, to rent the farm to a neighbor um, so that, that, again, they don't need that, that boy to take care of the farm. Um, so Anne never does provide the sort of help that they think they need, but she's meeting this other need that, um, as you mentioned, uh, enables Marilla to... Um, to soften and to um, to become more emotionally uh, open and developed. Um, and I think the author seems to be implying here that, that the need that Anne meets is the greater need, the greater need that they had. They didn't just need a farmhand to live in their house. They needed um, someone to change their hearts and to affect them uh, on a more personal basis. And, and Anne does that. Uh, and then, as you pointed out, right, um, that emotional help is all wonderful, but there is a practicality that comes in too when Marilla is, um, her eyesight is affected and she really does need someone to provide that more feminine practical help that Anne is capable of providing, um, both by uh, earning a wage outside the home as a teacher and then also by presumably taking care of other household tasks that Marilla with her, um, a diminished vision is unable to do. So she is ultimately able to meet a practical need uh, as well after having um, come alongside and and um, and improved their emotional and spiritual state. Um, so she doesn't end up helping with Matthew's work. She helps with Marilla's uh, and, and ultimately ends up being enabling Marilla to, to keep her home. So Marilla you know, bestows a home upon Anne at the beginning. And then, as you pointed out at the end, it's, it's Anne who enables Marilla to keep her home and Anne's. Um, and then also, I think it's really interesting. She's had this work um, working with children prior to coming to Green Gables. And, and the impression that we get is that she doesn't find it particularly fulfilling. She doesn't seem to enjoy it. She's happy to leave it behind. Uh, she's you know not looking forward to being given to Mrs. Blewett, who has you know, however many sets of twins. Um, but then her ability to care for a child ultimately um, does come in uh, later and, and heal the, the breach between her and Diana when she's able to nurse uh, Diana's baby sister, I think Minnie Mae is her name, um, back from, from essentially the brink of death with croup when, when they're trying to get the doctor to, to care for her. Anne's experience with children uh, ultimately does enable her to serve her, her bosom friend and her bosom friend's family um, and uh, I think that's a wonderful example of, of the providential redeeming of otherwise unpleasant and undesirable experiences, this idea that nothing is wasted. So even though um, most of what she provides is not along the lines of practical, she does have these moments where um, providence um, uses the, the, uh, the experiences and the expertise that she's acquired in these unexpected ways. And then ultimately, um, she is able to provide that uh, that practical help. Uh, so the author seems to be implying that that, that feminine, uh, the femininity is every bit as useful and helpful, and important as masculinity in the sense that Anne is able to save Green Gables uh, in a, uh, 
in just as real of a way at the end as she would have been if she'd been a boy at the beginning. Uh, but more than that, Anne is valuable not because she is a female and competent to do female work or a male who's competent to do male work, but because she is an individual and a person, uh, not just a tool or a body, but a self inherently valuable uh, as a result um, of her individuality and, and her personhood. So um, that's what I had um, on the issue of gender and feminism. Um, any comments on feminism and gender before we, we shift gears and move into uh, the portrayal of religion? Just that you both, you bring up such striking parallels and, you know, reversals showing this, like, tight structure to the novel, which is great because I think that can sort of get lost in the episodic structure of, oh, Anne's, you know, having another piece of mischief going on. So that's, um, that's, that's really great. Uh, thanks for thanks for that. That was really interesting. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and start talking about religion. Um, so, Heather, um, did you have something you wanted to talk about dealing with the way that, that religion ties into this novel? Yeah, I thought I would just um, talk a little bit about uh, kind of the, the root of Anne's romantic character um, and how that, that ties into some sort of spiritual or perhaps we should say pseudo-spiritual ideas and how that can affect kind of our relationships with real children. Um, so I think if you if you approach this book from a, a skeptic stance, right, one of the first questions you're going to ask is, well, why, how on earth is Anne the way that she is? Uh, as Alexis reminded us, Anne's early upbringing is extremely harsh. Uh, she's basically a drudge in a series of foster homes, she receives uh, little to no emotional nurturement whatsoever. Uh, and yet when she arrives at Green Gables, she is a character who is exploding with life and affection. Um, and so uh, we ask, right, how is it that, she, that she, she is this way rather than sort of this the emotionally stunted child that we might expect of someone who's coming out of her her really uh, rather abusive background. And I think the answer is that Montgomery is uh, drawing on this trope of the romantic child that has uh, much earlier roots, but that really, I think, gets solidified in the poetry of William Wordsworth uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a Wordsworth poem uh, called, and I always have to read the title because it's rather long and I get it goobered, uh, but it's the Ode on Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. And in this poem, uh, Wordsworth uh, postulates a pre-existence of the soul. And uh, this is what he says. He says, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. And so uh, Wordsworth is, is suggesting here, right, that when we are born, we are the closest to God and to the divine that we will ever be. And he, he develops this idea a little bit in the poem, and he draws a very strong connection between uh, this, this soul that is very close to God and the natural world. And of course, anyone uh, who has read Anne of Green Gables knows that Anne is absolutely in love 
with nature. She falls into raptures over a beautiful sunset uh, or, a, or a, a road lined with blooming trees. And she's, I think, very clearly uh, a kind of model of this Wordsworthian child. And um, Wordsworth, as he, he describes this child, I'm going to go ahead and read another small section of the poem. I can... Uh, Get it here. He he waxes very eloquent about what he thinks the powers of this uh, this almost divine child are. He says, "Thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity, thou best philosopher, who yet dost keep thy heritage, thou eye among the blind, that deaf and silent readest the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind, mighty prophet, see your blessed." on whom those truths do rest, which we are toiling all our lives to find in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. Thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master over a slave, a presence which is not to be put by. Um, and it's evident, I think, that Anne has a touch of this this ability to be a divine seer, as, as Wordsworth describes. And it comes out very early in the book on her drive to Green Gables with Matthew. And I'm going to go ahead and read just um, a very short passage from there. And it's, uh, it's this moment where they, are, they have arrived at uh, the place that's popularly known as the Avenue, but it's a road that's lined on either side by blooming apple trees. And through the trees, they can see uh, purple twilight descending. And Montgomery says, its beauty seemed to strike the child dumb. She leaned back in the buggy, her thin hands clasped before her, her face lifted rapturously to the white splendor above. Even when they had passed out and were driving down the long slope to Newbridge, she never moved or spoke. Still with rapt face, she gazed afar into the sunset west with eyes that saw visions trooping splendidly across that glowing background. Um, and then uh, a little bit later on, when she finds herself able to talk again, uh, she says, it made a queer, funny ache, and yet it was a pleasant ache. Did you ever have an ache like that, Mr. Cuthbert? Well, now I just can't recollect that I ever had. I have it lots of times, whenever I see anything royally beautiful. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I really enjoyed listening to, to what Marie had to say about the parodying of the, the female romantic friendship. Because at first glance, Right. The, the raptures that Diane or Anne exchanges with Diana seem to be kind of on a par uh, with Anne's raptures over the natural world. Uh, but in fact, I think when you really look at them, them, they're quite different, that this is not parody. And Montgomery is actually being fairly serious in her assigning this sort of uh, natural wisdom and divine wisdom to the character of Anne. Um, and, and what I would, I guess, sort of pull back and, and say about this is that um, Anne's character is the reason why people fall in love with this book. I think, you know, she's so delightful and her, her innocence and her connection, connection with the natural world is an important part of that. But um, it's important to remember, I think. 
particularly as Christians, uh, that we don't actually think that children are born sort of overflowing with divine knowledge. In fact, uh, we perceive them as sort of flawed and sinful creatures, just like adults are. And this is really important to remember, because if we fall too much in love with this idea of the, the words worthy and child, we can impose a burden of innocence on children that that is really unfair to them, right? And we might expect them to go out and have raptures over the apple trees and the sunset, uh, when in fact the child may not be inclined to, to connect particularly with the natural world at all. Um, and, and I'm not saying, by the way, that you shouldn't encourage your children to play outdoors or anything like that. That's a whole uh, sort of separate issue. Um, but but not to assume, right, these kind of raptures and poetic relationship between the child and innocence and nature and an order that we can actually connect with the real child and per perceive the child's real needs. And sorry, I think I went on a bit long there, but I'm done now. Wow, that was really... Um... That was really fantastic. Thank you. Um, I see a lot of what you're what you're talking about. I think in the book and in a lot of other books that I'm, I'm you know, thinking of that I've read, and I really appreciate that that perspective and the the reminder to to more our our thoughts about children in in the Bible and not in this idea of of turning them into uh, into little angels or uh, little prophets um, when they're they're not um, they're not those things. Um, and in fact, that, that kind of ties into what I wanted to talk about, which um, is, uh, again, going back to, to Matthew and Marilla's uh, initial adoption, uh, decision to adopt um, Anne. And that is initially when they're they're deciding to take in an orphan, um, their motivation appears to be basically all self-interest. Um, I'm, I'm sure, based on what we see from Marilla, that she thought of herself as doing a good thing in the world by offering to take in this orphan. Um, but we, um, we we see immediately the true center of the, their motivation when, um, when they're offered the chance to care for an orphan who cannot actually do anything for them as far as they can perceive it. Um, and immediately Marilla's re reaction is to reject the orphan and send that inconvenient Samaritan packing. And, and that, that, um, you know, with the allusion to, to, um, uh, the story of, of the good Samaritan. So I guess it wouldn't be the Samaritan. It would be the injured person, the Samaritan cared for, cared for. So, um, but, but I, I do want to take a quick minute aside here to talk about adoption and the gospel. Um, in the Bible, one of the metaphors that we see God use repeatedly uh, to describe his relationship to his people is that of adoption. Um, prior to our salvation, we have no claim on God's affections. We're not his people. We're not his children. In fact, we are rebels against him, children of wrath, children of his enemy, more so than we are of himself. Uh, but despite our lack of merit, uh, he adopts into his family everyone who trusts in the sacrifice of Christ. Um, and that decision to adopt us when we had nothing to recommend us uh, was a personally costly choice. Uh, specifically, we, we, we know that it cost him the death of his own true son. Uh, but he chooses to do it anyway, not because we deserve anything from him, but because he loves us. 
Uh, we're the scrawny, useless, unattractive, redheaded child always getting into scrapes. Um, but unlike Marilla and Matthew, God is not spiritually incomplete. Uh, he doesn't need us to fulfill a need that he has, and he doesn't need some divine child to help him come of age or come to youth or anything like that. We, uh, unlike Anne, we bring nothing to the table but our need, uh, and he delights to meet our need until our cup runneth over, because he is good. So that's just a, a little bit of a, a reminder about where, where adoption fits into to the gospel. Um, but Matthew and Marilla are clearly not thinking of adoption in these terms at the beginning of the book. Um, they think they're getting a, when they think they're getting a boy, there's a throwaway line where Marilla decides to have Anne sleep um, in the attic or wherever because the couch in the kitchen chamber suddenly doesn't seem appropriate for a girl. So even when they thought they were getting an, a boy, like, really, they thought they were getting a, a hired hand who they would pay with room and board. Um, he's sleeping on a couch off the kitchen. He's not treated as a son. This is not, you know, the prodigal son welcomed home with a robe and a calf and a ring. Um, this is, you know, we will let you live here. We will you know, endure you by sufferance as long as you help. Um, in the same way that Anne was treated in, in a lot of the other households where she was providing labor, um, presumably Matthew and Marilla would not have been uh, as, as uh, abusive and harsh um, as some of the families that Anne lived with. But, but the relationship there is not dissimilar as far as what they're thinking when, they, when they're planning to bring in this orphan. Uh, but at first, first Matthew sees in Anne, um, and then Marilla also shares this this perception. They begin to see in Anne not someone who meets their needs, but someone who needs them, someone that, that they could do good toward. Uh, and that is they begin to see her as a neighbor in need of love, someone in need of assistance, that they can be the good Samaritan uh, caring for her. Um, and there's a great piece um, that was... Uh, I'm trying to remember what the, the name of the actual publication was. It's Jen Wilkin, uh, the author and Bible study leader, um, uh, wrote a wonderful piece called um, Your Child is Your Neighbor and, and highlights this idea of um, we can often think that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about parenting and how to take care of children and how to raise them um, unless and until you realize that children are people that children are our neighbors, and therefore every single admonition regarding the way we are to treat our neighbors is in fact an admonition that speaks to how we are to treat our children. So just a quick excerpt from this article. Um, because if children are people, then they are also our neighbors. This means that every scriptural imperative that speaks to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves suddenly comes to bear on how we parent. Every command to love preferentially at great cost, with great effort, with godly wisdom, becomes not just a command to love the people in my workplace, or the people in my church, or the people at my hair salon, or the people on my street, or the people in the homeless shelter. It becomes a command to love the people under my own roof, no matter how small. If children are people, then our own children are our very closest neighbors. No other neighbor lives closer or needs our self-sacrificing love more. Um, and I think we, we get to see a little bit of that in the way that Matthew and Marilla experience that paradigm shift to see Anne not as um, something that fulfills a need that they have, but someone 
um, whose needs they can meet. And I think this is something we can fall into uh, even now in our relationships as parents or otherwise, where we think of ourselves as, as you know, feeling incomplete or needing something from someone else, getting married because we, we feel incomplete and we want that other person to, to do something for us to, to fulfill a need or having kids because we want uh, to have a need fulfilled. We want to feel loved or whatever it is. And I think it's it's a good reminder that um, as Christians, we are imitating the Lord's the Lord's sacrificial love towards us, um, and our and our ideas and relationships um, should be how we can imitate Him by meeting the needs of others, by a- acting towards others as He has acted towards us. Um, and so, you know, Christ is the ultimate good Samaritan who binds up our wounds and cares for us and provides a home for us, um, even though we were his enemies. And we then go out and, and we do the same for other people. Um, and so I think it's it's beautiful to see how Marilla and Matthew switch and they realize that they need to be thinking about how to care for Anne. And then that makes it all the more beautiful, as we've mentioned before, the reversal at the end of the book um, where... Um, you know, in the kindness of providence, right, this this person that Marilla has invested in now invests in and sacrifices for her. And I know some people um, get frustrated with with Anne's decision to to postpone her college career in order to care for Marilla. But I think it's it is just that reciprocity of that same sacrifice that Marilla and Matthew made for her uh, to give up what was convenient and comfortable for them um, and what fit with their plans and their goals because someone was in need. Um, and then she does the same thing. Someone who she loves is in need. And so she sacrifices um, in order to, to care for that person. So it's a beautiful picture, I think, of the way that we um, that we have the opportunity to live out the gospel by by loving one another sacrificially, specifically as parents, I think, in, in this novel, um, Matthew and Marilla, you know, stepping into that role. But in all of our relationships, I think it's a convicting call for us to to prefer one another above ourselves and to seek opportunities to to sacrifice for one another the way that that Christ sacrificed for us. Um Marie, what did you want to talk about uh, with regard to religion? Well, I'm just going to mention briefly something that's more autobiographical, I guess. Um, I I mean, I mentioned that I read this book so young that it was my first exposure to a lot of the concepts in it. And one particular touchstone concept for me was Anne's description early on in the book of just feeling a prayer. reading that, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first time I thought of prayer in that way, in this kind as this kind of non-discursive form of prayer, um, which is contrasted in the novel with the long-winded and these not seemingly heartfelt prayers of, of Superintendent Bell. Um, so this happens when, on first coming to Green Gables, Anne horrifies Marilla with her lack of an ability in praying. And Anne describes how if she really wanted to pray, she would, she says, go out into a great big field all alone or into the deep, deep woods. And I'd look up into the sky, up, up, up into that lovely blue sky that looks as if there was no end to its blueness. And then I just feel a prayer. Um, And there's a couple other parts where it talks about Anne's early ideas of prayer, too, like later in church, she describes 
looking at birches by a lake with sunshine falling through them into the water and thanking God for that rather than listening to Superintendent Bell's prayer. And and interestingly, too, there's also a part early on where Anne looks at the picture of Jesus and the little children, and she's basically performing a form of uh, Ignatian prayer where you imaginatively insert yourself into a biblical account of Jesus's life and sort of meditate on that in order to have a conversation with Jesus. Uh, but the idea that most sunk into me as this small child reading the book was just this one of just feeling a prayer because it was this whole other side to prayer, this connection to God through contemplation rather than rational language that I wouldn't have known to say that at the time. And it also, of course, privileges the role of nature in spiritual practice, which goes along exactly with, you know, what you were just saying, Heather, about Anne as this Wordsworthian child of nature. Um, but it also, I mean, is something that uh, I've learned in my own spiritual life it will help me to connect with God as well to to seek this contemplation in nature and this was sort of my first exposure to that and uh, when I was reading through the novel this time I was kind of thinking that these descriptions of prayer are like this they're almost like this palest lavender version of, you know, that famous passage in Alice Walker's The Color Purple, where Suge tells Celie about how she senses God's presence uh, everywhere, including in herself. And she says, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. Um, so anyway, even though Anne's descriptions of her prayers are kind of, Part of it, the humor of the novel because they're so you know unexpected and off-putting to Marilla or uh, so sort of whimsical as a part of her her character and also of course are coming out of this idea of Anne being this kind of spiritual seer that Heather was just talking about. Um, I appreciate them as being part of like my earliest thoughts in childhood about what prayer really is or can be or the variety of kinds of prayer that we can use to uh, have our relationship with God. Thanks for sharing that, Murray. Um, that's, yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot there, I think, to think about um, with, with the way that Anne uh, talks about prayer. Um, anything briefly on religion before we move into a quick lightning round? All right. Hearing nothing, we'll go ahead. Um, so uh, in our lightning round, I just wanted to give everybody opportunity uh, to mention a theme that's not yet been mentioned or some other pet peeve or, or uh, topic that you'd like the opportunity to delve into further another time, but we don't have time to get to today. Um, I'll, I'll jump off first um, and, and start us off. Um, one of the things that I like about the narrative of Anne of Green Gables is that it doesn't end with Anne going off and uh, changing the world. And I will say, I haven't read all of the later books, so I don't know if that's eventually where it goes. But uh, in the terms of, of this novel, um, right, it ends with her her making a sacrifice for her loved ones and continuing on in, in a sort of small, individual way, uh, trying to be faithful. And I think it's really easy um, to diminish the value of that because we, we can glom onto stories of people who went out and did big and exciting things. Um, and we can undervalue the importance of of quiet faithfulness um, and, and, and steady faithfulness in, in our relationships. Um, 
another book that I think illustrates this well uh, is uh, Louisa May Alcott's An Old Fashioned Girl, um, which I remember reading also uh, as a child and, and being struck with the degree to which one one girl could affect uh, this family in such a profound way just by trying to live faithfully um, in her relationships and in her life, even though her life is very small throughout the whole story. It's, it's nothing big and exciting. Um, and it reminds me of a piece that was uh, published in World Magazine recently um, by Janie Cheney uh, called A Well-Behaved Woman. And, uh, and it's sort of a, a meditation on uh, the quote, you know, well-behaved women seldom make history. And, and she points out that making history is not necessarily a, a great goal to shoot for because you can make history in terrible, awful ways uh, just as much as you can make history in wonderful ways. Um, and that there are a lot of women who never made history but did make other worthwhile and important things um, by the way that they lived their relationships and cared for one another. And, and Janie specifically, uh, Janie Cheney in this article is specifically um, reflecting on her own mother's investment in, in her life uh, and in the lives of those around them. And this would be true also for, for men, um, right? That, that, that quiet faithfulness for, for any Christian, I think, um, to think about um, the impact that we have, not just in terms of how we change the world or, or uh, big picture events, but to remember that people matter profoundly uh, to God uh, being made in his image and our, our, our influence on people and the way that we love those closest to us uh, has, has real value. And that should not be, um, that should not be diminished or, or, or disrespected. Um, and that we want to, we want to encourage people towards that kind of local, quiet faithfulness, uh, and kindness, um, because it can make a profound difference, maybe not in history, uh, but in, in the personal histories of, of individuals around us. So uh, I, I particularly like that aspect of Anne of Green Gables, that she doesn't have to go on and change the world in order to change, um, the people around her and change their lives for the better. Um, Heather, did you have anything that you wanted to, to mention in the lightning round? Uh, I didn't, although I'll offer a comment on what you just said, if I may. Um, as speaking from the perspective of the entire series, um, Anne actually more or less remains in that role. At, at any rate, she finishes, she finishes the series in the role of the kind of quiet, homemaker and she ends up actually she, she uh, after Anne of Green Gables you know she she goes on she gets further education she does more teaching and she begins to make her mark on the world as a writer uh, but once she's married and begins having children her writing is something actually that falls by the wayside and it's a, a career path that she's never able to pursue or fulfill um, and the book really seems to have, or the series rather, I should say, rather mixed feelings about that. Um, Montgomery herself, of course, achieves um, literary success before her own marriage, I believe, or, or else very, very close to it. I'd have to look at the exact dates. Um, and so even though I think you're right in that uh, certainly lives of quiet service are, are valuable and worthwhile, um, I don't know how much I would read that particular message fully uh, into the Anne stories. That's fair. That's fair. That's, and that's useful perspective to have um, from the view of the whole series. So thank you. Um, Marie, did you have anything you wanted to mention for the lightning round or further response to what we just talked about? 
Hmm. I guess one really quick thing that embarrassingly only struck me this last time reading a book was uh, that that school teacher, um, Mr. Phillips and Percy Andrews, when I was reading it all in the past, I was always like, oh, well, that's probably, you know, that's something wrong with Percy Andrews flirting with the school teacher. Like that was the impression I had growing up. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is, that is not good. Actually, this is a very bad <laughs> situation. Um, so that's my, I guess, pet peeve uh, with my uh, immature readings of the book. <laughs> right. He gets a lot creepier the the older that you get, I think, as yes. a reader. <laughs> yes. Well, that's fair. Um, all right. Well, then finally, we'll move into our final segment, which is Passing On, where we make recommendations to our listeners uh, for other uh, books or um, uh, other works that they might appreciate or that might be uh, good to, to explore, um, building on our conversation uh, in this podcast. Marie, what did you have that you wanted to recommend for Passing On? Well, I'm going to go ahead and recommend another Montgomery book, um, The Blue Castle just because I feel like it's not as well known as a lot of her other work, and I love it myself. Um, for me, the, the protagonist, Valancy Sterling, I mean, she's kind of like this pale echo of Charlotte Bronte's Lucy Snow in Villette a little bit character-wise, and that's one of my favorite books. Um, but, I mean, I also like, the, like it in contrast to how Anne is so vivid and voluble um, instead, Valancy Sterling is just quiet, less outrageous, but still ends up being this very satisfying character. Um, she has this conventional but, you know, satisfying arc as she grows up and it sort of grows and learns to stand for herself, uh, stand up for herself. Um, and a little bit of a spoiler, but it happens pretty early on. Uh, she does propose to the man she wants to marry, which is a really fun aspect for me of this book. Excellent. Thanks for that recommendation. Um, my recommendation is uh, also another novel, uh, Jean Stratton Porter's Girl of the Limberlost, um, partly because I always take the opportunity to recommend Jean Stratton Porter because I feel like no one I, I talked to has ever read her, and I think everyone should read her. Um, uh, she um, was uh, sort of building on the, what we talked about today with a lot of the focus on nature. She was uh, actually a naturalist and um, sets her novels in this area of Indiana called the Limberlost that was forest and all these different butterflies and uh, an incredibly beautiful uh, area um, that basically no longer exists because of um, it having the, the lumber and the trees all having been felled for, for the, the lumber industry. But uh, she's got several books that are set in that area. The Girl of the Limberlost is very thematically similar to Anne of Green Gables. Um, you have uh, a girl who has a troubled home life and, and some troubled personal relationships. Uh, she's a very close relationship with nature, a very appreciative of nature, uh, tries to be faithful. She's maybe not as dynamic a character or as um, uh, quite as uh, endearing a character as Anne, um, but you still get that opportunity to see sort of that 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 faithfulness um, and the the effect on those around her and um, her. She's a, you know she's very much a, a fish out of water um, in her social interaction. She's very unusual because of her her upbringing and, and where she lives. So um, and I just I love Jean Stratton Porter's works. So um, any of her works, Freckles or um, 
uh, Girl of the Lumber Lost, either of those would, would be excellent to read if you enjoyed Anne of Green Gables. Uh, Heather, did you have a recommendation for us? I do, although I, I have this haunting feeling that I might have actually recommended this book before on this podcast, but that's okay if I have because it is worth recommending again. Um, and that is The Penderwicks by Jean Birdsall. And it is kind of a contemporary Little Women. It's about a family of four sisters and their adventures growing up together. Uh, so again, it's about kind of a close-knit feminine community and the roles that they play in that. And they are just absolutely charming and delightful. And I cannot recommend them enough. The final book in the series, I believe, is due out, um, I think it's this or next month, very soon. Anyway, and I'm actually like super excited, both that Jean Stratton Porter, whom I like, and especially The Blue Castle were also recommended. Uh, the Blue <laughs> Castle is a book I think I read almost every year. And although the high point for me uh, is comes when um, there's a moment when Valency is having dinner with her very staid and conventional family, and she uh, up and tells each of them exactly what she thinks of them. And yeah. it is one of the <laughs> funniest scenes uh, I think I have ever read. So, I'm pretty uh, sure you first recommended this book to me, too. <laughs> it's possible. I think I recommended all the romance novels that you have read. Very likely. <laughs> I, I taught you bad habits in high school. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, good habits. <laughs> now, an important question about the Penderwicks. Is there an awful Amy character in those books? Because if there's an Amy, I can't, I can't do it. There is an Amy, but she is not awful. Um, she's she's quite different. I mean, she she fills the Amy role, but not in the spoiled child way. Um, the biggest similarity is that they are both artists. And fingers crossed, she's gonna marry Laurie at the end. But that is unclear. That's what we're waiting to find out in the final book. Okay, I don't mind if she marries Laurie. I just if she's terrible, I just I by the time I finish Little Women, I want to set her on fire every time. So. Um, all right. Well, those are great recommendations. I look forward to, to exploring both of those books. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Marie Haas and Heather Elliott, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Terry Pratchett's witches as representations of feminism. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>